You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. J.P. Ricciardi's baseball career began as an undrafted free agent with the New York Mets organization, but his playing days lasted only two seasons before he transitioned into coaching and eventually scouting. He worked under Sandy Alderson and Billy Bean with the Oakland Athletics before becoming the general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays in late 2001, a post he held for nearly a decade. Ricciardi worked with the Mets for several years after leaving Toronto, reuniting with Alderson in New York's front office. Last year, he moved back to California, joining the San Francisco Giants as a special advisor. I sat down with Ricciardi to discuss his career path, the ups and downs of his time in Toronto, and much, much more. Enjoy this conversation with Giants special advisor, J.P. Ricciardi. J.P., so you grew up in Massachusetts. You won a state title in baseball. Rich Gedman was your teammate. Uh, you did the same in basketball as well, but was baseball always your first love? Yeah, my dad played in the minor leagues. My dad played in the Red Sox organization, and uh, I think from a young age we were always uh, we always leaned toward uh, toward baseball. Although I love basketball, I, I coached high school basketball for a long time. Uh, I have a passion for it, but uh, yeah, baseball has always been uh, probably the the most important thing about us. Big Red Sox fan growing up, I assume. I, you know, it's funny. I was up until uh, right around like s- early seventies. Uh, 67, I really remember the uh, the impossible dream. Tony Caniglero was my favorite player. I remember when he got hit in the eye that night. Uh, so that's when I really, I was, I think at that time, probably about eight. That's when I could really remember uh, baseball and really follow it and, and be able to figure out who was who and what was going on. So I was a big Red Sox fan then. And then as I got older, I just, I liked players, you know, and I kind of matriculated more toward players. Uh, and being a middle infielder, I liked Willie Randolph with the Yankees, so I would follow them. But uh, more of a baseball fan than just one fan. Growing up, when you were growing up, GMs and executives were not well-known around the league. Maybe you knew your own GM, the, the team you followed. But yeah. Were there any baseball executives that you watched from afar and kind of had any admiration no, for? No, never, never really. You know, you heard the names. I mean, probably the one person I knew was running stuff anywhere was Red Auerbach because the Celtics were so good. You know, right. and you always heard who Auerbach was going to trade for or traded for. Uh, I, I, maybe Dick O'Connell might have been the GM of the, of the Red Sox back then. But no, uh, I never was thinking along those terms, you know. Uh, it seemed like it was a simpler time, too. You attended St. Leo University in Florida, joined the Mets as a non-drafted free agent. Uh, played two seasons in yep. the lower levels of their system. What was minor league life like for you? Actually, it was if you're a baseball guy and you like to play, it's great. But you know, it's it's a grind. Uh, it, great experience because I got to play with some really good players, play against some really good guys. Uh, you know, I played with Dykstra, was in camp with Strawberry and, and Kevin Mitchell, and uh, you know, played with a lot of guys that ended up being big league players. And you, you know, as a as a baseball guy, you you can you start your evaluation process kind of you know through seeing guys you play with or play against. Uh, you know, it was great. I was you know blessed that I got an opportunity to play. Uh, I think you, you you realize your strengths and weaknesses as a player as you continue to rise up certain ranks. And uh, you know, I could always pick it and throw it and run, but uh, came to swing and I'm in trouble. But uh, you know, it was a great experience, and uh, you know, made me want to really stay in the game. 
I was going to say, you hit 188 in those two seasons. Yeah, to remind me of that. Ended your playing career. Sorry about that. Did you know at that point that you did want to stay in the game long term? I I definitely knew I wanted to do something coaching. I wasn't sure, you know, what. I wasn't sure how. Uh, I I just knew I, you know, when I get up in the morning, if it's something to do with with a a ball, I'm excited. If it doesn't, I really don't have much interest. So I knew I wanted to stay in sports in some way, shape, or form. It just... You know, like most minor league players, when you get released, you don't, you don't really know what 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 road you're going to take. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate that I knew Bill Livesey, and he had called me up uh, and asked me if I wanted to stay in the game, and I said, yeah, and I uh, ended up uh, working in the Yankee organization, so you, it worked out good. You coached in the organization, I right? coached in the Yankee organization for two years, and, uh, and then I moved over to uh, Milwaukee for a year, and... Uh, you know, when you're first starting out, you bounce around a lot, you know, because you, you know, you're willing to do anything and take anything. Uh, and it wasn't until I, I really got with the A's that uh, kind of had at least a little more security. So that's 1986. You joined the A's as a minor league instructor. Eventually move into the scouting side, start moving up the ranks there. How did you find scouting at first? I love scouting. Uh, I, I love being on the field, but I, I love scouting because, you know, you're always looking to find a player. Not so much that you're sitting there saying, oh, I'm going to find the next Willie Mays or the next Hank Aaron, but, you know, the players come in all shapes and sizes. I think if you have an open mind and you like players, when you go to a game, you're sitting there saying, okay, show me what you can do so you can be positive about the player. And uh, I thought that, uh, you know, the ability to go and find talent at any level, whether it's a first round or a 20th rounder, uh, was always exciting to, you know, to be at a game. So I, I really, really enjoy the evaluation part of it. Is there a specific skill set that you think – makes for a better scout or is scouting something that if you work long enough and hard enough at it you put enough time in you can get good at it yeah I think this is probably going to sound a little controversial but I I think you either can scout or you can't scout I really don't think there's much I mean I think there's guys out there that can go in and check the boxes and give you a pretty generic idea of a player I think they're really good scouts they just have an innate ability to really see the little things in the game Um, I think where I was blessed was I grew up in a baseball family. The nuances of the game, the, the things that are important, you, you learned at a younger age. Uh, I think being able to you know play in high school, play in college, play in the minor leagues, you get exposed to different things and you pick up on different things. And uh, so I think experience really, really helps. That doesn't mean you know if you don't play that you can't be a good evaluator. But I think the guys who can evaluate, I, I just think they have an innate ability to know what, what plays and what doesn't. After your, your initial scouting, you, uh, 1996, you became a special assistant to, to Sandy Alderson, who was the GM at the time. What kind of responsibilities did you have in that role? Uh, you know, in Oakland, we didn't have a big staff. So it was great because uh, I got to do a little bit of everything, whether it was helping uh, trades, uh, waiver claims, uh, six-year free agents, um, you know, we, we did everything. We, we evaluated all the, you know, double A, triple A, uh, still saw guys for the draft. So it was great because I got to put my hand in all different uh, areas of putting an organization together. And it was, and Sandy was great because he was a big believer in just letting you go, you know. And uh, like I said, we didn't have a big staff, so we had to wear a lot of hats. Uh, and uh, it, it was great. Billy. I think at that point had come over to the front office in some way, shape, and form, and uh, I had played with Billy, so I knew him a long time, and uh, you know we had a good rapport, and uh, it was great. Just got a lot of exposure to. Uh, I think the best thing, you, and I, I tell young scouts this all the time, the best thing you can do is just build up your dossier, just see as many games, and just you know after five years you're going to be able to say, wow, I've seen all these players, I've got a pretty good idea of, 
you know, what good ones look like and what they don't. But you just have to see a lot of games. Billy takes over as the GM, and your titles change to director of player personnel, later assistant GM. What was it like working for Billy? Like you said, you guys have been teammates. Yeah, at uh, one Billy's point. great. I mean, Sandy was great, and Billy was great. Uh, two different styles. Uh, Billy's probably more my style. Uh, very aggressive, uh, not afraid to take chances. And, you know, when we were with Sandy, the, the club was, we won the World Series in 89, and we were probably the highest payroll club at the time. Uh, when Billy took over, we were probably down at the bottom. So we had to be more creative. But it was fun because, uh, once again, I think uh, ignorance is bliss. I, I don't think we knew a lot of what the hell we were doing, uh, but we weren't afraid to take chances. And I think, you know, we were able to, lay the groundwork for, you know, some of the future things that happened. You know, we did go to the playoffs seven times in my 16 years there, and it wasn't all when we had the most money. So we had to be creative, and uh, and Billy, you know, he's, he's a dear friend, but he's always been great to work with. Billy and Sandy obviously have had remarkable careers. What were the biggest things you learned working for those two guys? Uh, Sandy, I think, um, well, I've learned so many things from Sandy. I don't know if I could give you one or two, but uh, Sandy's very calm. He doesn't uh, let when all hex breaking loose around him. He's just very, very even keeled. Uh, he's uh, very, he's a good listener. Uh, awesome with the press. Amazing with the press. Um, and I think Sandy is, uh, he wants people's input. He, he encourages people to, to give him his input. He doesn't, he doesn't go in with a preconceived notion on anything. He's very open-minded and very fair. Um, Billy is probably more like me, uh, more more aggressive, uh, not afraid to take chances. Um, you know, a little bit of a, more of a risk taker, I would say. Although Sandy wasn't afraid to take some chances, um, but you know, loyal guys, uh, just quality guys to you know, just away from baseball, just quality people. So that that's probably the best thing I ever you know I took away from my relationship with those guys. You were a member of the U.S. Olympic Baseball Selection Committee, uh, responsible for that team that won the gold in 2000. What was that experience like? That was amazing because, uh, you know, Sandy called me and asked me if I, I would do it, and I said, of course. Uh, and, you know, I don't think you ever really realize um, how much your country means to you until you ask to do something like that. And I know we were in the background and we were picking the team, but uh, we were also uh, – in the playoffs that year for Oakland. So I was advancing in September, but I was more concerned with how we were doing in the, the, the uh, Pan Am games because we had to qualify in 90, I think it was 99. Right. And uh, so actually when we, we beat Canada, there was no access to this information. You know, So my phone rang, it was I think 3 o'clock in the morning, and Pat Gillick and Sandy called me to tell me that we beat, I think it was Canada, to qualify for the Pan Am games. And then the next year, uh, I was advancing. We were, we were following Cleveland, and uh, we won the gold medal. But I was we were trying to find scores from Australia. You know, it was really hard to find out. So it was uh, it was a it was a great great experience. And uh, you know, just glad we won the gold. <laughs> right. The early days of the internet were were interesting. No, yeah, trying to find was, it. even it was, though there wasn't internet, you maybe not not no, finding out the no, uh, it wasn't, scores from Sydney. So yeah, quickly. no, it was tough. It was tough, but it was great. It was a great experience. And you know, for us to win the gold was. Uh, in our game, you know, it's our game, so it was good to win the gold. Did you get a medal? No, we don't get a uh, The only people who get just medals players, just the players. Coaches. I don't even think the coaches oh, get really? medals. Yeah. But they gave us a ring, and they gave us a nice plaque of the team. And honestly, it, it's not even – it's just we knew we won. Right. It was the most important thing. After the 2001 season, you're hired as a general manager of the Blue Jays. 
Did you feel you were ready for the GM position? Honestly, I didn't. Uh, I never thought about being a GM, and uh, I, I never had any aspirations to do it. And uh, I'll never forget. I was uh, I was working out. It was early November, and Billy called me and he said, "Hey, uh, just got a call from the Blue Jays. They want to interview you to be the GM." And I told him, I said, I'm, really, I'm not that interested. And my, my kids were five and three. And he says, why don't you just go on the interview? He goes, it'll be a good experience for you. Just go on the interview. And uh, so I said, okay, so I'll go on the interview. So I went on the interview, and uh, the interview started at 9. And at 11 o'clock, they offered me the job. And I was, I never expected to be offered the job. I was just going for more, like, to see what the experience was like. And uh, so I, I went downstairs I called my wife I said hey they offered me the job she goes I knew they were going to offer you the job <laughs> anyway was so she happy about that is the question yeah she, well Toronto's was, a long way from Oakland uh but you know what it, but closer to Massachusetts yeah so what happened was uh I went home and we talked about it and I said you know what I'm really happy in the job I have I work with good people they treat me great the boys are young uh I, I'm going to turn it down so I called them and I, I that night uh I was going to call them the next morning and then my wife woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and she woke me up, and she said, listen, you have to take this job. And I said, why? She goes, well, if you don't, you'll always sit there and say, what if? So now's the time to do it. The kids were, kids were young. So if it wasn't for my wife, Diane, I wouldn't have taken the job. And I called them, you know, worked it out, took the job, and it was an amazing experience. What were the challenges of trying to lure, <laughs> lure players to Toronto, as free agents specifically? Well, what happened was when I, when I took over in the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays were in, uh, under new ownership, and they didn't want to be the Blue Jays of the past, which was pretty successful, and they spent money, uh, and they wanted to go in a different direction. So they wanted to cut every possible way they could cut, and it was you know scouting, player development. They wanted to bring it down to like an Oakland model, uh, to bare bone it and to take the payroll down. So. That was a challenge in itself. We had to take the payroll from $88 million. They wanted to get it down to 55 in the first year. We were able to get it to 66. But uh, And then our payroll going forward was basically between 50 and $53 million. So, you know, you're competing with the Red Sox and the Yankees who have the two highest payrolls in baseball at the time. The two arguably best teams in baseball, you're in a – a really competitive division, and you're you're cutting your payroll. So it's how are you going to get players to come to Toronto? And, and Carlos Delgado was a great player, an absolutely phenomenal player, but he was making 38 percent of our payroll. He was making 18 million dollars, so we were, we were really hamstrung in what we could do. So the challenge was, you know, we had to really become like a a smaller market team trying to compete in the American League East, which was which was tough. So it was hard to get players to come because we didn't have a lot of money. And then, you know, the challenge in Toronto is, and I'm, I know you've been to Toronto several times, it's a great city. It's a great city. My wife and I, we love it. And uh, But trying to convince other players to come there, it's they see it as a whole different country, and they don't realize, I mean, it's a great place. Yeah. So the challenge was always with the wives, trying to convince the wives to that, you know, going through customs isn't that big a deal. And... So anyway, uh, I think when we eventually got to the point where the payroll got increased, you know, we had to overspend on a few guys to get them to come there. But we were able, you know, we, we brought some pretty good players over there, and uh, it was uh, it was a challenge, though. As the GM in Toronto, you made a number of deals with the A's. Yeah. Was Oakland an ideal trade partner because of the familiarity, or was it trickier because, like you said, you and Billy are similar, you evaluate players in a similar fashion, so 
you know, you guys may look at each other's teams and see the same guys that you like. I think it worked out great because uh, of the familiarity with the players. I think the first trade we made, I, I traded Billy Koch, uh, and obviously Billy helped them uh, get to the playoffs, but we got Eric Hinsky back right. who won the Rookie of the Year, and uh, we got Justin Miller who came back and helped us in the pen. So I think that was that was a good trade. Uh, we were able to get uh, Scudero, and you know we, we let Scudero play every day, which in Oakland he, he wasn't playing, so that, that ended up working out really good for us. You know, I think we got Corey Lytle, who ended up being a good contributor for us. So I think the trades we made were uh, were helpful for both clubs. Uh, after the 2002 season, your name was floated as a candidate for the Red Sox GM <laughs> job, which ultimately went to Theo. Uh, you signed a five-year extension with the Blue Jays instead. Was any part of you intrigued by the idea of going home and working in Massachusetts? Well, this was a this was a tough one because I actually got offered the job, and uh, I I was sitting there. And so my wife and I, once again, like a year removed from making a, one big decision, we have to make another one. And uh, I just said, you know, these guys in Toronto, they, they took a chance on me. They gave me, they gave me the job. You know, they, they trusted me. They believed in me. I just wouldn't feel right if I just picked up and left after one year on these guys, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, and I knew at some point as a father, which you are, you're going to have to explain to your kids that you have to make some tough decisions in life and your word has to mean something. And I just did not feel right going to those guys and saying, listen, I know it's in my backyard. I know I'm going to have way more resources. I know I could have an opportunity to, to, to have everything in front of me to be a playoff team. Um, I just I just didn't feel right. It didn't sit, sit well in my stomach. So I, I turned the Red Sox job down. And uh, I, I never looked back, though. I never... Uh, you know, I've always been an underdog. I didn't mind the fight. I, I knew we were going to have a big fight in Toronto. Uh, but I just felt it would have been real easy to take the easy way out. So I just thought I did what was, you know, my heart was telling me the right thing to do. One draft moment a lot of Blue Jays fans looked back on was you taking Ricky Romero at one spot ahead of Troy Chulowitzki. Romero ended up being a very good pitcher for you guys. Um, I think McCutcheon was drafted a few spots after you as yeah, well. That was a good draft. With, with that example specifically, or even just drafts in general, you ever look back on them and think, what if? Uh, not really because, you know, there's so many you can look back at and say, you know, it worked in our favor or this and that. It's hard because you're in the moment. But, you know, the reason we took Romero was we could not get free agent pitchers to come to Toronto. We didn't have the resources, and we knew we were going to have to develop pitching somewhere along the line. And we were fortunate because through those drafts, uh, I mean, Romero became an all-star. Um we got Jansen, we got Markham. We we ended up drafting a lot of players uh, that ended up becoming big leaguers for us and doing a good job for us. Uh, so we ended up we figured we, we were going to have to invest in pitching because it's going to be hard. And the free agent market, we're never going to be able to draw guys here because we're never going to have the resources. So the more we can invest in, uh, and we had Aaron Hill who ended up becoming an all star at shortstop. So we liked Tulowitzki, but we just figured let's try try to get as much pitching as we can. You, you hired John Gibbons to be the bullpen catcher in 2002. <laughs> Eventually, he got promoted to first base coach and then ultimately manager. When you hire somebody for a job like bullpen catcher, does part of you think, what what could this guy ascend to? Or was Gibby just a rare well, situation? Well, Gibby was my roommate in the minor leagues, and he called me up and he was out of a job. That must have been quite a room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, his side was pretty messy. <laughs> but um, he was out of a job. And uh, the only job I had was... Uh, was the bullpen catcher. So I said, Gibby, I, I, I could put you in the big leagues, but it's, it's going to be a bullpen catcher's job. 
So, of course, the first week of spring training, Gibby had to get his knees drained twice because he couldn't catch <laughs> all the bullpens. Uh, but anyway, uh, I always thought Gibby was a good baseball guy. I thought he did a good job in AAA as a manager. And uh, I thought it was just another way to get a good baseball guy on staff. And, you know, you try to get as many people around you that you have rapport with and, and maybe have a little bit of a thought process that's the same. So, you know, it ended up working out pretty good for him. You, uh, you talked about the difficulty of or your perceived difficulty of bringing pitchers, signing pitchers. Uh, that 2005 winter, you made some big moves, brought in A.J. Burnett, B.J. Ryan, also Lyle Overbay, Troy Gloss, Benji Molina. As a GM, when you make that many big moves in one offseason, is it exciting? Is it terrifying? Is it all the above? What's your What's your mindset when you make yeah. such a big, you know, a big flurry of moves in one small period of time? Well, I think at that point, we had uh, the purse strings got loosened up a little bit. I think we went from 50 to maybe 75 uh, million. So we had to take advantage of our opportunity that ownership gave us. Uh, but no, as far as like being afraid, no. I mean, it was exciting in the sense that we could get some good players. You know, we got we brought Lyle Overbay in, who became a really good player for us. Uh, Gloss was a good player, became an all-star. Um, you know, if you look at Burnett's three years in Toronto, I think he was... I think he had 40 wins and he had a, a below a sub four ERA and a strikeout in inning, so he was he was great for us. Um, he got some big money off those years. Yeah, yeah, he did, and for us it ended up uh, it ended up being a really good investment. But you know, we it was just a chance for us to to take a shot in the arm and to take a chance at you know the one shot we had to maybe compete with those guys. That Burnett contract had the opt out clause in it, which he utilized right. to go then become a free agent and sign with the Yankees. Do you think opt-out clauses are, are good for the game? Well, in this particular case, this was a win-win because we were going out on a limb a little bit on Burnett. He wasn't really a proven guy. He was kind of – he would touch, you know, sometimes being special and sometimes not being special. So we figured, okay, if it's three years and he pitches great, we got three good years out of him. If he pitches lousy and he stays, well, you know, that's that's the risk we took. And it ended up being that he pitched good for us, and he opted out, and we figured, hey, we got three good years out of a guy that, you know, it was tough. It was hard to get him to come to, to Toronto, but, I mean, it was, it, it worked out great. Like I said, his, his numbers were great, and, you know, him, Halliday, Lily, we had, we had really good pitching staff. You mentioned the guys like Hinsky and Scudero, a couple under-the-radar acquisitions who ended up being big players for Toronto. Signing A.J. Burnett, signing B.J. Ryan, big free agent, that's one thing. Just write the check and yeah. talk them into why they should come. When you can acquire those other kinds of guys and they hit, is that more satisfying as a GM? I think you got to take your satisfaction any way it comes. You know, you're <laughs> trying to build a team. I think what we, you know, if you look back, um, we traded for Scudero. He became a very good player. We traded for Batista, became an all-star. We traded for Gloss, became an all-star. We traded for Hillenbrand, became an all-star. We traded for Lilly, became an all-star. I think our trades are pretty good. I think we have a pretty good track record. Uh, but all of them filled a certain kind of need. And, and, and in some cases, like Batista and Scudero, we just gave them the opportunity to play. And they, they took off. So the evaluation part was more so, do we have the right environment to give them an opportunity to play? But I think if you go back and you look at our, our track record on trades, we, we did a pretty good job on trades and, and getting guys that ended up becoming – you know, very good players for us. Uh, so, you know, you, you take a little bit of pride in that. But, you know, the end result is you want to be a playoff team. And, you know, in eight years we never could be a playoff team. And I think a big part of it was uh, just being in the wrong division. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a big mountain to climb when you're looking at the Yankees and Red Sox spending what they spend and having the type of players they have. Well, we won 86 games one year. We came in second place. The Cardinals won 84 and won the World Series, and, <laughs> and we went home. Right. So that shows you what the defense, you know, what the uh, the division was like, and it was just. I mean, when you look at the, you go back and look at those lineups, one through nine with the Red Sox. I mean, Bill Miller was hitting ninth and won a batting title. They were scoring over a thousand runs a year. We were scoring 880. We couldn't even touch those guys. So it was just a, a, an unbelievable division. And then you know, Tampa was very competitive. So uh, it was it was a tough division. After Carlos Delgado left for the Marlins, you were quoted as saying, "It will be highly unlikely that we'll give a no trade clause to a player going forward." Uh, how tough is that to balance? a player's desire for a no trade when they're signing a deal versus your desire to sign that player. And if that's the only thing that's standing in the way, to just say, fine, we'll, we'll give you the no trade. I think, well, one thing you learn over time is even no trades are tradable because most of these guys get moved at some point. Um, so I think most clubs would rather not have a no trade. Uh, I think it just comes down to the situation, the individual player, what the commitment is from the organization. Uh, I think personally, you know, a, a limited trade is probably better than a no trade. But, you know, it, every situation is different. And you have to deal with how it comes up. Front offices have become so analytically driven these days, but your background is in scouting. Do you think scouting has become an underappreciated aspect of the game? I don't think it's become underappreciated. I think it's been uh, maybe just pushed to the side a little bit. I think... Uh, there's a whole new wave of people coming into the game today that um, maybe just don't understand the value of scouting. Um, and I think analytics are great. I think uh, they've brought a lot to the table. I don't think they're the end-all, be-all. I don't think scouting's the end-all, be-all. I think there has to be a hybrid in there. Um, I, I get a little disappointed when some people disregard guys who've been in the game for 40 years as guys who don't know much about the game. I mean, you can't just throw 40 years of experience out the window not thinking that those guys have some value. I mean, I've been around some amazing, I mean, Pat Gillick, uh, Stick Michael. I mean, great, just great baseball guys, great evaluators that you learn from. Um, and, you know, you can't tell me that those guys don't have value. So, um, you know, I, I think the scout, I think the scout today is being challenged, but I think it's a good challenge in some ways that it's going to make them maybe a little bit more aware of what's going on in the game analytically to, to form their opinion on players. But I still think a, you know, a good scout is a very important part of an organization. Speaking of analytics, I read an interview you did, I think it was with Jonah Carey, uh, where you said you don't hold much value in defensive metrics. Yeah and, yeah, and obviously there have been a lot of advancements in those metrics since then. In the time since you said that, have you have you changed your opinion on it at all? I think the, the one area where I think it shows up more is in the, the, the catcher's framing. I don't think you can really scout that unless it's off TV. Uh, I think if you're at the park and you're watching that, that's that's a very, very tough thing to scout. But I think if you're at the park and, and you're watching a series on a team, you get a pretty good idea defensively what a guy can do with your eyes. I don't think you really need the metric. There's certain metrics that I, I still wonder. For instance, uh, exit velocity. I find it a little insulting if a guy hit three balls off the green monster that you have to tell me what his exit velocity was. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you know, you think about it. It's, right. The guy hit the ball hard. Uh, you know, and uh, launch angle. Uh, I don't know how you're going to hit a fastball from mid-thigh down unless you drop the head of the bat, you know. So it's the only way you can hit that pitch. Uh, so launch angle goes, you know, is obviously 
it points out what it was, but there's no way any kind of hitter can lift that ball. Uh, spin rate, if you see a good curveball, uh, I don't think you really have to, you need the spin rate to tell you it's a pretty good curveball. So I think there's some things with, that analytically, uh, I think a good scout sees already. Um, but I think, you know, analytically it just gets supported. So that, that's a good thing. But I think a good scout picks up a lot of those things. And yet now players are looking at things like launch angle and trying to adjust their swings to, to correct, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, it is it is certainly having an impact, not only in, in scouting in front offices, but even down in the clubhouse. Sure, sure. And I think, you know, there's been guys that have altered their swings and have had a lot of success, and there's been guys who have altered their swings and not have a lot of success. So, you know, the game is evolving. The game is changing. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I think there's a place for everything in the game. I just I hate to see it be analytics on one side and scouting on the other and I think there's a place for both both parties uh, I do find it kind of curious that all the analytic guys do want to go out and watch the games though uh, you got to go through some managerial searches in Toronto did you enjoy that process it seems like some guys dread it and some guys find it very useful beyond just selecting the manager it's it's a good experience in the fact that you get to meet different people in the game and you get to hear their viewpoints and ideas on you know how they would do things and what they would do uh, the worst part about it is it takes so much time and it takes you away from what you want to do in the off offseason. Uh, but I enjoyed getting to talk baseball with a lot of the people that, that we brought in, whether it was you know in, uh, in uh, Toronto or in New York. And uh, it's just great to be around baseball people and hear you know, what makes them tick, what, what their thoughts are. And you, you do learn a lot from picking people's brains. In Toronto, you gave long-term contract extensions to Vernon Wells, Eric Hinsky early in their careers. Does that feel risky to lock up players that don't have that long track record, or do you have to have the faith that what you've seen to that point is what you're going to continue getting? Well, it's 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 always a risk. I think when we did Hinsky and Wells in the beginning, it was it was not so bad because they were they were all pre-arb and then early arb years, so it wasn't like they were going to break the bank on you. So it was a little bit of a, a leap of faith. I think both of them worked out fine. I think you know they didn't make a ton of money. Uh, but we were also trying to be able to lock up some young players as opposed to having them hit free agency or, uh, you know, be in a spot where, okay, now we've got to replace all these guys. So I think it was uh, – in both those contracts, I think they worked out fine for us. Vernon's contract was pretty good. Well, Vernon's contract – made a lot of money. <laughs> the second contract for right. Vernon, yeah. And, you know, that one, if I had to do it over again, I probably wouldn't. Uh, I, th- I think I learned a lot from that. Uh, I love Vernon. He's a great guy. I think if you go back and you look at, I mean, this was a guy that we did all the homework. I think he was 26 at the time. He had won a silver slugger. He had won two gold gloves. He had averaged, I think, 280 with 26 home runs, drove in 85, 86 runs a year. I think his uh, on base was close to like 325. I mean, this is a guy in the prime of his career, and this is the one chance we got to keep him here. We're never going to bring him here as a free agent. So... You know, ownership was great. We went out on a limb. You know, it didn't work out, although the Jays were able to move a lot of the contract. But it didn't work out. And what it taught me was um, it's it's a real leap of faith to to, to take a a player and, and, you know, go that long on a deal on someone. And as much as you believe in the guy, you know, most of those deals don't work out. And uh, and that one didn't work out for uh, for the – the way we thought it would, but uh, man, we did all our homework. We thought this was a prime guy right in the primary career, and it just didn't work out. So uh, I learned a lesson on that one. 
bring something else up that may be sort of like the 180 batting average. During the final home game in 2009, some people hung a big banner on the, in the stands <laughs> that said, Fire JP. It was removed in the second inning, but it was there. I'm sure you saw it. Uh, how thick does a GM's skin have to be in that role? I, my first year, I read every possible thing you could read. And then I realized, what am I doing this for? This is like suicide because you are never going to please everybody. And there's always going to be, whether it's a writer, whether it's fans. So I just came to the conclusion that I'm not going to read the papers. Uh, I'm going to do the best job that I can do. I know what circumstances that we have to work under. I know you know, what the reality is. And uh, I'm just going to do the best job we can do. And if it's not good enough, it's not good enough. I, I wasn't never worried. I never worked in fear, like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. I mean, you know, I tell people, being, being a GM is like being in the mob. You don't retire from that job, you know? So, so someone, the only difference is we might have a 401k plan, and they don't. But, I've never uh, heard that analogy. Yeah, I like that. You know, you don't really retire from these jobs. I mean, most people, uh, you know, the, the Scherholzes and the Gillicks and the Sandy Aldersons, I mean, they have and Billy Beans. I mean, it's Cashman's. There's a few guys that have unbelievable careers. But for the most part, I had eight years of doing it. It, it was a great run. I mean, and we, we had four winning years and four sub-500 years, but – knowing what we had to deal with and knowing, you know, that most of that time was, you know, one hand behind our back, I was I was really happy. But, you know, we, we brought a lot of players in in trades that ended up turning out well. We drafted well. We developed, I think, over 55 guys who played in the big leagues from our farm system. We had good scouts. We had good people. Uh, Alex Antopoulos went on to become a GM. Uh, Tony LaCarva has gotten in, uh, interviewed a few times. We've we've had a couple guys, Tommy Tanis, become a scouting director. Billy Gasparino's become – a scouting director. So we, we've had uh, a good group of people. It just, uh, if I had one wish, I wish I wasn't in that division. <laughs> that, that would have been the only thing. But it was a great experience. And El Central that year would have been a good one. But the anyone wins, anyone right? but the East. Right? So you leave the Blue Jays. You had to work for ESPN for baseball tonight. Uh, did you think TV might be your long-term no. career at that point? No. You just looked at it as a yeah. stopgap? I just did it for fun, to be honest with you. I had a free year. And I did it for fun. I was coaching my kids in the summer, and it was they, they were very flexible. Uh, wasn't something I was looking at. They had just called me and said, hey, they needed someone. So it wasn't too far from my house. And uh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of good people there. Uh, I think they've changed a little bit how much they, they spend with uh, baseball tonight. I don't think it's on as much. But it was a lot of fun. It was great to be around a lot of the guys. And uh, But I never, I never looked at it as a long-range thing. You were offered a job by the Red Sox in late 2009. You chose ultimately to go work for Sandy again, this time with the Mets. What what went into that decision? Well, I actually took the job with the Red Sox. Theo told me I had the shortest tenure in Red Sox history. <laughs> I worked one day for the Red Sox. Um, well, what happened was uh, Sandy took the job with the Mets, asked me to come over with him, and, uh, you know, out of loyalty, I uh, I went with Sandy. Um, my, my kids are always screaming at me, Dad, why don't you go to the Red Sox? You know, they're going to win. You're going to go to the Mets, they're not going to win. I tried to explain to him, you know, it's uh, it's bigger than that. But, you know, Sandy was taking over a whole new situation. He was taking over a situation at that time that, you know, the, the Mets had gone through the Madoff situation. And, uh, you know, I knew Sandy had his hands full, and he asked me to come over with him. And it was great. It was it was really good. Uh, we had, you know, eight years were good. It was uh, – we had our challenges. But you can have your challenges no matter where you go. So – but being able to work with Sandy was good because I, I got to learn a lot of things watching him be the GM. Um, and just watching how, and a lot of times I'd sit there and say, I wouldn't handle it like that, and the way I would have handled it would have been wrong. 
So I learned a lot from Sandy watching how he handled the press and, and different things. So it was it was it was really good experience. Was Theo upset with you for leaving? No, he understood. He understood. Sandy gave me more money too. <laughs> <laughs> if they had won the World Series that year, the Red Sox would you have asked for a ring for your one day of service? <laughs> You once said, quote, you learn real quick, baseball becomes a business, you become loyal to who you work for. Um, yet in the 2015 playoffs, you said you were pulling for the Jays in the AL. When you leave an organization, is there still a small piece of that organization oh, that stays with you? Definitely. I remember when I left Oakland, uh, and, and Oakland is still, my wife still secretly roots for the A's. Uh, it's The great thing about baseball is the relationships you make. It's the people you work with. It's the people you come in contact with. And it's the friendships you build. So, what you know, 16 years in Oakland, and we, we did a lot of nice things, but you, you build up so many friendships. And then when you go to a whole new place, it's like, wow, well, you look back at that and you say, geez, I missed this, I missed that. But but then, you you know, you go through the process and you, you build up those friendships, uh, different places, and you build a family atmosphere. We had a great time in Toronto, good people. Uh, and then, you know, when you leave, it's, it's sad because you miss a lot of the people that – and it's not; it's just the day-to-day stuff that you miss. The clubhouse guys, the you know, the clubhouse kids, uh, the you know, the traveling secretary. It's not the players, and it, you do miss all that. But it's it's kind of like the ancillary people that are always around that you spend time talking to, and uh, you know, you spend eight years in one place a long time, and then you know, kind of going through it a little bit now because you left you know New York after eight years. So, uh, but it's also the great thing about the game is you get to meet new people and make new friends. You, the Blue Jays were two wins away from the World Series that year. They lost in Game 6 to ALCS. What would a Mets-Blue Jays World Series have been like for you? I thought it would have been great. I was uh, I was rooting for Alex. You know, obviously he uh, had been my assistant. I wanted to see them do well. Uh, you know, I never I haven't left one place where I had any animosity or wished any bad on anybody. I mean, it's just not how I'm built. But I, I really, the people of Toronto, they're, they're good fans. Uh, I know the ownership group had been there a long time. I mean, I thought it just would have been amazing for the Blue Jays to be, you know, back in the World Series. And I thought it had been great. You know, Mets, Blue Jays would have been super, but it didn't work out. Last year when Sandy had to step down to deal with his health issues, you, Omar Benai, and John Ricco shared duties in his place. What was that dynamic like, having three of you? It was fine because there were, there, we didn't really have to make any major, major decisions. There was no big trades that had to come down. Uh, most of the stuff was... Uh, Probably the biggest thing we had to do was trade Familia, uh, and I think we turned that into a pretty good deal. Uh, but nothing major. Uh, you know, we weren't moving to Grom, we weren't moving Syndergaard, we weren't, you know, having a, a major trade on the forefront. So uh, I think it was pretty pretty seamless. You attended this year's GM meetings as a member of the Mets front office, and then I think it was like less than a week later you left the Mets and then joined the Giants a few weeks later. After that. What appealed to you about going to work with Farhan in San Francisco? Well, I, I, I knew Farhan from just uh, – he was with the A's after I was there, but, you know, spending time around him. Um, and I think I, my my ability is going to be better utilized over here for what uh, what the Giants want to accomplish going forward. So it was more of a challenge, I think, over here to, to do some of the things I like to do. Your son Dante was drafted by the Mariners, 39th round in 2015, chose to go play college ball instead. Given what you do for a living, what was it like watching him go through that experience from the player side? Yeah, he, you know, he's he's a, he's a good college player, you know, and I try to tell him that uh, I personally don't want my boys to go in baseball. Uh, I think it's changed so much, uh, but you know, it's in their blood. 
I, you know, I was very happy for him, very proud of him. But uh, you know, he's uh, he's going to graduate, get his degree, and uh, you know, he's probably going to go become a, a scout or a, you know put his toe in the water that way. But uh, you know, you you want your kid, you want like you know, like all of us, we want the best for our kids. And uh, we'll see what uh, the future has in, in store for him. Your duties in the various jobs you've had over the years have included amateur and pro scouting, player development, trades, free agency, and a lot more. What's your favorite part of the job? Ooh. Uh, I think I think the best part of being involved with uh, a team is 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock. That's when the games happen. That's when... You have no control over anything. All the work you've done is just there. It's the games, you know. It's it's the to watch the competition, to you know, to see how you do that night. I, I, I mean, all the other stuff is great. I mean, you make trades, but it ultimately you're doing all those things to have an effect on between seven o'clock and ten o'clock. And uh, you know, for for all of us who live and die with our teams, you know, it sometimes it's nerve wracking, but it's uh, it's still the best time. In 2003, you were quoted as saying, maybe 30 years from now, I'll go to Boston. That's now only 14 years away. <laughs> Would you like to work for the Red Sox at some point before your career is over? Or is the idea of going home, you're past that? Yeah, I think, I, I don't know if I'm past it, but uh, I, I, I this is my 39th year in the game. You know, playing, coaching, scouting, managing, general manager, different roles. I've enjoyed every job I've had. I've enjoyed, you know, every place I've been. I've, I've met great people. Uh, you know, you never say no to being able to go work for your hometown team, but I've, I've never sat in any job I've had and said, man, I hate this job. I can't wait to get out of it. Uh, so I've, I've learned to enjoy the places I've been, the people I work with, and uh, I just feel blessed that, you know, I never thought playing catch in the backyard with my dad, I'd spend my lifetime, you know, making my living in baseball. And, uh, you know, someone once said this, and I believe it so much that uh, – you know, I've gotten way more out of baseball than I've ever given baseball. So it's a, it's just a blessing to be in the game. J.P. Ricciardi, Giants Special Advisor, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Many thanks to J.P. Ricciardi for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes, I'll sit down with Red Sox Assistant GM Zach Scott, Rays Vice President of Baseball Operations James Click, Rockies Assistant GM Zach Rosenthal, and many more executives around the league. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.